Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that thinks that kissing the referee should be legal. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working as FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. Uh, thank you especially for bringing me into that one. Uh, have to agree now, yes, kissing should be legal. Um, I'm furious that it isn't already. And today we are going to be talking a little bit about captains, uh, the importance or the not importance of them more specifically. Um, and later on, we'll also be getting into a couple of previews of some of the other leagues around Europe. Yeah, definitely. I think captaincy is one of those things. I don't know that we'll reach a definitive answer in this because I think there's evidence to either side and there's, you know, 50-50 examples. But it's one of those questions that, you know, you, you often... The question is sometimes asked, as it's been asked in recent years with, uh, you know, Manchester City, for example, do you need a striker to score goals? Um, I always thought so. Growing up, apparently not. Um, <laughs> perhaps one day we'll, we'll have the question asked, if you need a goalkeeper um, to, to keep a clean sheet, perhaps the answer there too is no. Or, or indeed things like, you know, playing a back three, playing a false nine, all these sort of different things. But captaincy is really interesting because it's one of those, like, intangibles. Like, what, what is it that a captain does? Um, and, and certainly in different sports, it, it, you know, captains have, have very different roles. Um, you know, in, in, in some sports like cricket, for example, um, you know, the skipper makes sort of on the, on the pitch decisions like changing bowlers and changing the batting order and changing fielding positions. Um, and is sort of the on the field manager, if you like, which is a term that's often used for captains in football, but is, is less so the case. Like you don't really see captains, um, you know, pick, picking the lineup in, in, in most clubs or anything like that, or having really any input in that. Um, so, so what is it that a captain does? Is it just standing in the middle of the uh, of the pitch before the game and choosing heads or tails? Or is it, you know, leading people fearlessly uh, into victory uh, and away from defeat? Or, or, or is it somewhere in between? Uh, well, it, it's those things and more. Um, so I thought it'd be quite a fun, interesting place to start, um, which is just to reference another podcast, which is um, the podcast that Peter Crouch does. Um, I actually don't know what the name of it is, but if you looked up Peter Crouch podcast, the the Peter Crouch podcast, (laughs) the Peter Crouch podcast. There you go. I was so close to it. Um, And he was talking about how um, yeah, he was being asked whether or not he'd ever wanted to be a captain, things like that. And he said, "No, it's not for me." He said, "What I couldn't get my head around, or what I wouldn't want to do, was all of the boring." uh, like admin tasks, like secretary tasks that, and he quotes here, every captain is doing in the Premier League at this point in time, and every captain he's ever, like, every captain of, of every team he's ever played under has done all of these things. And those things are specifically during the build up to the game, working out which players need which tickets for away matches sorting them all out, making sure everyone's happy, going around the dressing room being like, how many tickets do you need? You need four, right? You need six, but this person needs two, so he can have two of yours, etc. Instead of actually working out, you know, getting his head right for the game itself. That um, cannot be true in the modern game. He, this is, this is an interview, I mean, look, Peter Crouch, he retired in 2019. So, I'm, I'm astounded of, by that. It, it's honestly astounding. Um, not just that, um, another role of captains is to call up if you're on a away match, for example, and you want to go out and celebrate in the city that you're at. Call up clubs to get tables um, to try and and you know. I mean that that get, that, that, get, that, one, that one's less admin. That's that's just kind of like uh, get the team out. 
organising fines is another thing that often falls to the club captain. They were kind of joking about how Ryan Shawcross at Stoke got super militant with it. And apparently at one point he was sitting on like 40 grand come Christmas um, because he was main, he was like in charge of all of them and then and then would like give them back into um, the club at a later date and then or, or they kind of, kind of organise something for the team with that money. But that's another role that, that captains do. So it's not just, um, you know, what we think of as these traditional roles of someone that has to lead by example and, um, you know, take the penalties, etc. Um, but it's also very much a, a practical role. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, a, a lot of those um, are practical, but sound, you know, not to like picking the, the you know, the clubs or the tables or whatever, or, or, you know, organizing the fines. Those are sort of like, fair enough, you know, you're sort of the, the, the you are the, the team leader. The the pre-match away tickets thing, I, I am <laughs> astounded by that. I cannot believe that in this day and age when most big football clubs have about a thousand employees, there's not someone who's sort of, or not specifically their role, but there's not someone who that's their job on a match day to, to go around and make sure everyone is, you know, in charge of that, uh, like a hospitality officer or someone. That that That's astounding. Maybe it was only at Stoke or maybe that's... I can't really wrap my head around that. That's that's incredible. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Um, just to imagine, like, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of, like, who the the funniest captain would be, trying to watch him go around and, and pick up um, everyone's thing. Maybe, like, Harry Roy, Maguire Roy, at Manchester Keane, United. Obviously. Roy, Roy Keane, obviously. Roy Keane. Oh, oh in, in history, yeah, obviously. But um, I was more thinking, like, in, in the present day, um, you know, which of which of the current... Uh, Premier League managed, Premier League captains would would be funniest trying to trying to get them to do that. But Roy Keane, obviously, we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about him at some point. I definitely have something I want to talk about in relation to him being Manchester United captain. But I think he would handle that incredibly well. I think uh, everyone would be like, "No, I'm fine, thanks, Roy," and it would be a two minute job. People's parents would be standing outside the gates at Old Trafford. They'd be like, "Because <laughs> the, the the new kid was just too scared to tell Roy he'd he'd organised two away tickets." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, no, it's a it's a mad part of the game, um, and one that I definitely didn't know until I was researching about captains. And I think that's actually kind of what what I'm hoping to really get out of this, um, and what I hope people will get out of this is not, as you said, we're not going to come up with a sort of definitive answer of how important a captain is, but it's it's quite a niche thing in football that not everyone knows a lot about. For example, neither of us until recently knew that that was a role that captains did. So. It's kind of a, yeah, it's taking a step back, looking at something very specific that happens in the footballing world and um, what it really means to, to have that role. Well, the re- the reason I thought this is also an interesting topic because you're right, it's, it's very topical. But I think there's a there's a perception in a lot of places that the the importance of a captain has maybe diminished a little bit over over recent years, and also like what it means to be a captain has also changed. Like time was your captain was you know often sort of a grizzled stalwart who'd been at the club for X amount of years and come up as a 16 year old and played and done all this, and now that they were sort of like 28 plus, they were the captain. Um, but now more and more more we're seeing you know younger captains for one the captain is not always necessarily the oldest person in the squad um we're seeing captains uh, and captain C's being given to sort of the the flair players in the squad or the most important players in the squad you know you'll see players like you know most notably Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo given the captaincy for their national teams for example because it's kind of like well you're our best player so people respect you not necessarily because they're good at delegating tasks or even I mean I think there's something about you know the best position to be a captain which I think is either a centre-back or a or a midfielder um because you can see more of the pitch and, and delegate but um that's just that's my thing but um 
you know that we we see a lot of it people being given the armband because it's either a sort of bargaining chip or or something to 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 you know give to players to convince them to stay and and even now that there's you know things even beyond that where we see specifically in in Spain um but as well now as, as some enclaves in the UK notably City Arsenal and uh, and Leeds which uh, suggests that perhaps this is where where it started with Leeds um of having a captain a vice captain a third captain and even a fourth captain so the role of a captain culturally even if those roles are still sort of a lot of those same roles are the same the old is different um has has changed a lot it has i mean i think I can't help but disagree with you a little bit. Um, and and the reason why I would disagree is that I feel like now they're getting names and titles like third and fourth captains. But it, it's not as if, you know, when we look at the, some of the great captains or some of the most famous captains, um, as you mentioned, they're like the grizzled heroes. Um, you know, someone like John Terry, for example, he was that grizzled guy. He was that guy who epitomised... Um, what the club fought for. He was always, you know, making those goal line saves, etc. If you don't think that Frank Lampard had a massive impact on that dressing room, I think I think you're you're laughing. If you don't think that Didier Drogba had a massive impact on that dressing room, I think you're laughing. If you don't think that Petr Cech had a massive impact on that dressing room, I think you're laughing. And you can you can look at interviews with John Terry where he says Frank Lampard was so important to that dressing room because after every session he was out there practicing his his penalties or his free kicks or as long distance shooting, and he was being such a good role model for the young players in the club. And that is tr- traditionally something that you would associate with a captain. It's someone who is absolutely leading by example. So I think that the idea that the role of a captain is massively changing is is a slightly flawed one. I'd be interested to hear if you disagree with that, um, because I do feel like, again, look at Manchester United. You say like Vidic was captain or Roy Keane was captain. If you don't think there were other big you know, names in that dressing room, big personalities having an impact and and all playing a role in making sure that the dressing room was well managed and and happy and performing well, then I think that's missing something. I think that's true, but I think there's a little bit of a difference and, you know, not being a professional footballer myself, I could be off base, but I think there's a difference between having these these sort of leadership groups of the old boys who sort of all sort of gather around in the dressing room and, and are generally the old guard and having it designated as sort of like captain, second captain, third captain, fourth captain. Something about that really? to me just sort of makes it feel almost like less... Like, like, uh, and and you can see this in the fact that it's not not all clubs have done that. Like a lot of the 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 clubs and most of the clubs in in the UK still have just one captain, and they might have someone who it's sort of typically unofficially if they're on the pitch, they're most likely for the armband to go to, but it's not like listed out in the squad list. I think I think having like I don't know why third captain and fourth captain just sort of rubs me up in a weird way, but but it does. It doesn't feel right. I know what you mean. It feels like you know, and you get to be the assistant to the assistant of the vice captain. Um, it, it seems a little counter. I don't know. Everyone, everyone gets a role. Everyone gets to be a prefect, kind of thing. Um, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, but I do think that performatively, it's the same because, you know, what are the other roles that these third and fourth captains do? If the captain's out injured, the second cap, the vice captain takes takes charge. That's always been the the case. Even if there wasn't a vice captain, if the vice mm. captain's out, the third captain takes charge. And obviously, that was always the case. You know, if 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 Terry was out and Lampard was out, then Drogba took it or, or Petr Cech took it. Or do you know what I mean? Like it is performatively the same. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true. Well, well, let's, let's move on then. Let, let me ask you this. The big question really, you know, what's in a captain? What's a captain do? Do teams 
need captains, good captains, to be successful. Um, because on the one hand, we look at so many of these sort of legendary teams through the ages, and they always have sort of like a legendary figure with them, like someone like a Puyol, who uh, you referenced the other episode, or, or you know, Roy Keane, as we were just talking about, or Paolo Maldini, uh, or, you know, the, these sort of like legendary, you know, iconic figures who sort of stand uh, and sort of yeah. galvanize the, the entire squad. But then on the other side, there are examples of teams like, for example, last season's Manchester City. Um, their club captain was Fernandinho, and he only started 10 games, but City still dominated the league. So is the captain, do you need a good captain? Or is this idea sort of having a leadership group more important? What what do, do you think people need to have like a, an on-the-pitch guy to sort of rally behind? Or can that just be from the charisma of the manager if they have a certain management style? What, what do you reckon? I think um, a good captain is not necessary but it's so, so helpful. Um, and I think it really, really has a big impact on on how a team performs. And I, I would argue, A, that, that Man City are a little bit of an anomaly as a team um, because, you know, they, they seem to kind of reject traditional wisdoms at all times, such as by not having a traditional striker um, and get away with it. And, and, you know, or benching players who have, performed really well for two weeks. Um, do you know what I mean? There's so many things that, that Man City do, does that Pep Guardiola does that, that you look at that and you think that shouldn't work, but he continues to get results out of it. Um, the the second thing I would say is um, I, I think that at times City really struggle for not having a good on-pitch on leader. Um, I think they blew all the teams out of the water last season, apart from Liverpool, um, just because they were so much better than them. But there are still games and, and they still consistently have these games every year where they just fall one one goal behind and then they just lose all focus. They can't they can't bring it back. They they continually hammer away at the door and ultimately lose games or draw to games, games that they could have won. Um, so I do think that there are times where it is shown that they are lacking really good, effective leadership on the pitch maybe the likes of which someone like Vincent Company would have offered when he was at the club. Um, but they are an example of, of how it's not entirely 100% necessary. Yeah, that's a, that's a very fair point. And of course, uh, you know, the only team to win an unbeaten had a, had a fantastic captain. And, you know, a lot of the, uh, the dynasties that we talk about, I mean, City are probably the exception rather than the rule. Who, who would you say, uh, out of interest, and I appreciate this putting you on the spot, who, who do you think is the... So the the standout captain for you at the moment in the Premier League, if if indeed there is one, because I know I know we've got a we've got a transitional phase with a lot of clubs at the moment, with a lot of people leaving. So a lot of a lot of clubs have got people, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, we talk about um, we talk about how good Brighton are in terms of 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 you know defensive solidity and setting up well, and I think Lewis Dunk is a really good manager. Um, I think he or captain, he, yeah. he is. Sorry, a really good captain. I think he can be really effective there. Um, I think that Declan Rice is quite a good captain for West Ham. I think he is he is so often at the heart of everything that, that West Ham are doing well. Of those two, I mean, obviously, there's also uh, the, the podcast's favourite man, James Ward-Prowse. Um, sure is. I think, George, I think those, those guys are all, um, are all runners-up. And I think it probably has to go to Jordan Henderson. Yeah, although, I mean, I, I, I agree, because obviously he's so, so powerful. Uh, th- th- this is the other question, is like, is it important to have a playing captain? Do If you have a club captain, let's say someone who's been around for ages, and not this necessarily Jordan Henson yet, but 
I, I assume it'll be the case with Jordan Henson in the next two or three years. Someone who doesn't really play that many games, but is a really good influence and, and you know, a, a great leadership figure in the dressing room. Is it important to have a playing captain or is it is it not that important? And, you know, at that point, what's the difference between a, a club captain and like a first team coach, like a Kevin Nolan at West Ham, if they're, if they're not playing that much? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like the, the ideal is is one who is like one of the best players in the team. But I think if they have enough qualities outside of just their performance, like leadership leadership traits and things like that, I think it's okay that they don't play every game. Um, you know, it, for example, Fernandinho dropping down to only playing five, ten games a season. I'm not immediately ripping the, the, the captaincy off him, but I'm also probably starting to look around the dressing room and going, is there anyone who might fill this role a little better? So it, it really just depends. It's always a judgment call, isn't it? And ultimately managers picking captains it will literally just be like who is the best possible candidate that i have rather than what's the perfect captain yeah no i i I suppose although a lot of the times managers come in and it must be kind of a daunting thing if you're the manager to because i I love it what managers do like changing the captain it's a brave thing to do for sure I, i don't think it's very common that managers come in and immediately change the captain um unless no, no, not at all okay is what were you saying as in i, 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 managers... I was saying i always find it interesting when that does happen when when managers come oh, in right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they just rip the armband off someone and, and just give it to someone else i mean I, I think that would be mad behavior that'd be like coming in and being like right sorry supporters no beers in the stadium you'd be like i immediately hate this man <laughs> right <laughs> you, you it just wouldn't it wouldn't fly you have to you have to show respect to get respect as a manager, I think surely. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought um, there was one kind of good good example that I wanted to give um, of of a way in which I think a, a good captain or lack thereof has impacted a team quite significantly. And um, I would pick uh, Brazil actually um, over the last ten years. So um, for quite some time, I think it was as early as two thousand and eleven. Thiago Silva was made the captain um and he's obviously a a very good leader he's an incredible defender um but there have been times where he's come under fire so for example in in 2012 i believe um he was really heavily criticized by some some brazilian like ex-players for not taking a penalty in a penalty shootout that they ultimately lost um and it's this interesting idea that even if he wasn't, you know, in the top five best penalty takers, clearly, at least in, in the minds of, of classic players, old players, the role of a captain is to demonstrably lead at all times. Not just to lead and think, I'm going to put my ego aside and say that these five are the best, but to demonstrably lead and say, I'm going to step up, I'm going to do what needs to be done and take a penalty. Um so that was an interesting thing. And he also got criticized for crying, which was he cried during the, <laughs> the penalty shootout. And uh, apparently that showed that he was weak. Um, but uh, he's had a bit of a storied career. So back in tw- up in 2014, um, when uh, Brazil had quite a uh, up and down World Cup, let's say, um, he was having an incredible World Cup and, and took Brazil to the semifinals. Unfortunately, however, he was... Uh, suspended in the quarters for receiving one too many yellow cards and didn't play in that famous semi-final in which 
Brazil completely capitulated and lost 7-1. And it was such a drastic turnaround from the team that you'd seen move through the, the competition thus far to the team that, that played against Germany on that day. Um, and so I think was, that yeah. really showed how important it was to have a player like him on the pitch leading. Um, after that, he actually was replaced by the manager that came in. Um, it, he didn't immediately come in. He'd already been a manager there before. It was Dunga. So it doesn't quite, um, doesn't quite fulfill the criteria that you mentioned earlier. But um, one, like quite early on when Dunga came back as Brazil manager, he replaced Thiago Silva with Neymar. And Neymar, I think we can all agree, is not the kind of guy you want leading leading you into battle. Um, and I think Brazil have really struggled as a result of Neymar being captain for a few years, um, up until the point where in 2019 it was taken off him again and it's begun to be rotated around the squad. So for the last 10 years, Brazil have had a good captain, but one that was heavily criticised and one that, for whatever reason, wasn't able to play. They massively struggled. He then got replaced by someone else who's done a really bad job. And and that's then changed again. And now it continues to move around. I think the front runner at the moment is Casemiro, who's another good leader. But I think we can all agree that when we look at the players that Brazil have had in the last 10 years, it's mad that they haven't really won much of anything at all. And I think one of the, the big reasons for that is because they don't have the kind of team cohesion that a manager and especially um, sorry, a captain will bring, especially to a team that is is so rarely playing together. You need a good captain to be the glue in an international team, um, probably yeah. more than you do in a, in a club team. So I just thought Brazil was an interesting example because um, they've had a very storied kind of 10 years or so and, and they've also really struggled on the pitch. I think a great case study uh, to look at Brazil. Very interesting there. And also, you know, interesting to consider the difference between international and club football. But I think that's where we're going to wrap this segment because I am quite interested and keen on leaving this a little bit open-ended because I think um, you've, you've made a very good case there for captains being extremely important. But uh, but what do the listeners think? And uh, what will we think uh, as we sort of dip back into this uh, a couple of weeks, couple of months, couple of years from now and sort of reevaluate our, our, our opinion? Mm, um, absolutely. So, do you have so, a do you have a favourite captain of all time? Uh, I just I, I grew up watching Paolo Maldini, so so I always love Paolo Maldini. Mm. He was a he was a giant, wasn't he? He absolutely was. But that will probably segue us nicely into into the next part, which is uh, actually not a Serie. I believe that's our it's our Bundesliga deep dive next. Sure will. And welcome again. Here we are back for another league preview, a little mini deep dive or whatever we're going to call these. Um, and this time we fly over to Germany to take a look at how the Bundesliga is shaping up. This time we have the benefit of one game week having been played, which we didn't uh, when recording the Serie A uh, preview, um, with a range of performances from Germany's top uh, flight teams. One of the things I want to talk about uh, at the start is this sort of interesting thing I noticed when sort of going through a couple of the transfers and sort of compiling things, and one of it was, was quite usefully compiled uh, on on the website I was using, which is looking at the overall um, income and expenditures by the league as a whole. 
Uh, and it turns out that in the Bundesliga, in terms of income, there has been four hundred and one million pounds made from player sales so far, um, and four hundred twenty-four million pounds spent, which is a um, you know negative balance of, uh, of twenty-two million pounds. So if you go across the league, twenty-two point eight to be to be precise. Um, which is quite an interesting little thing, if you ask me, because it sort of speaks to how these um, these leagues often um, they, they can sort of seem more like selling leagues, and there's less money to buy. I mean, if you compare that, for example, to the Premier League, so again in the Bundesliga, it was twenty two point eight million, not spent on average. If you take the net spend of all of the clubs combined, it's twenty two million. Now that same you know, statistic coming from the Premier League, the net spend of all of the clubs put together is six hundred eighty eight million. <laughs> So it's £660 million more, um, with the Premier League having spent uh, £1.3 billion uh, so far, and um, having sold players um, amounting for £638 million. So quite an interesting thing there, looking at sort of the health uh, financially of the various leagues and how things go. The Bundesliga obviously is one that has been dominated for a long, long time now by Bayern Munich, who have won the last 10 leagues in a row. Um, so I think it's pretty obvious who are going to win this season. Um I don't think that Dortmund uh, or indeed Army Leipzig are going to be putting up that much of a fight, but we could yet be wrong. One of the interesting things to look at with the Bundesliga is that we've had a couple of high-profile departures. Uh, obviously, Erling Haaland has gone from uh, Borussia Dortmund over to Manchester City. One of those, uh, well, not that large money, but one of the bigger money uh, moves, I suppose, going out of there, and has already started off strong in the Premier League. Um, and the other one is that Robert Lewandowski has gone to Barcelona um, for, for, for £40 million. Um, the interesting thing there is sort of wondering... Who's going to be the top scorer this year? You know, Lewandowski has been the top scorer for, for a long time. And now that he's left, you might think, well, Haaland can fill that in. But he's left too. Um, so who's it going to be? I mean, there are a couple of uh, likely competitors. Sadio Mane could come in. And of course, has already sc- scored 30 minutes into into his first game in the Bundesliga. Um, and naturally, um, you know, Bayern do score a lot of goals. They've had one game this season so far and they've scored six goals. Um, so he'll be in the mix. Patrick Schick could be another one who's very interesting to look at. Um, we've talked about him a lot and obviously he came across very well in the Euros um, and, and is an interesting player indeed. And Christopher Nkunku over at Leipzig uh, could be another likely competitor. It's the 60th year of the competition. As mentioned, Bayern have won the last 10. Uh, and even with the loss of Lewandowski, it's, it's pretty unlikely they won't win the 11th. They finished 11, uh, eight points clear rather last season. Um, and, and even that was sort of because they coasted to a loss and two draws in their final three games after the title was, was more or less uh, wrapped up. They've also improved uh, massively in terms of the players they've brought in. Sadio Mane is probably the most notable import there, um, certainly from a, from a Premier League perspective. But they've also brought in Matis De Ligt from Juventus, uh, Mathis Tell, a forward from Stade Rene, and highly rated 20-year-old Ryan Gravenberch from Ajax, as well as his teammate uh, Nusser Mazraoui on a free. On the other hand, when you look at the team that, um, you know, historically and typically challenges them as they can to, to, to the league win, and certainly did last season, Dortmund, They've lost their superstar Erling Haaland, uh, and while incoming Karim Ediemi should prove a solid addition, it's pretty hard to replace the creature, uh, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Uh, and additionally, to sort of add to Dortmund's woes, they they got the very sad news that uh, Sebastian Halle, who joined them, uh, obviously came in um, from West Ham, then went to Ajax for a lot of money, and then had, did, had a good season there, and so Dortmund spent a lot of money with, on him. 
Uh, he was unfortunately diagnosed with testicular cancer uh, before the start of the season. So um, obviously, uh, you know, all well wishes to him. And that's the main thing. But um, also from Dortmund's point of view, it's a little bit difficult now because they have to do what they can with the money they got from, from Erling Haaland. And you, you kind of have to wonder with them, they wouldn't have been better off selling him a year earlier for a really high price in order to fund a squad overhaul, um, particularly given that they didn't, didn't really win anything of note last season. Uh, I think they might have got to the final of the of the League Cup, but yeah, not not really in the mix for for a lot of stuff and, and certainly didn't end up winning anything with, with Haaland there. So you kind of have to ask, like, if they'd sold him a season earlier to, uh, to Man City for... 150 million pounds um would that have been the better decision they could have sort of thrown a lot of money behind behind that into a squad rebuild uh union berlin are one that i think are quite interesting they've been sort of slowly climbing the table year on year since being promoted in 2019-20 uh and finished fifth last year despite losing uh taiwo Awanai to nottingham forest um they've brought in some some quite interesting players that i'm looking forward to seeing um, for example, uh, they've brought in Jordan Spatchu from Young Boys, uh, Jamie Lewerling from Greuther Firth, who are also newly promoted, and Morton Thorsby from Sampdoria. Uh, so sent forward a second striker and, and, and a midfielder, respectively. Very interesting signings indeed, and I, I just like a club that, that sort of continues to sort of... That, that seem to me to be kind of like the German answer to, to Leicester City. Not that everything needs a Premier League analogue, but uh, I appreciate that most listeners here are probably Premier League fans, so it, it definitely doesn't hurt. Um, so I'm sort of soft rooting for, for Union Berlin because I think they're, they're a very interesting prospect. Uh, looking at some of those first week of games, um, Bayern, as mentioned, beat Eintracht Frankfurt 6-1. And went with quite an interesting style. Having lost um, Robert Lewandowski, a lot of people thought they were going to go with either sort of like Thomas Muller playing as a false nine, or maybe sort of playing Sadio Mane up top as sort of the, the proper striker as he sort of played that role for, for Liverpool a couple of times. Um, but instead they went with quite a curious 4-2-2-2, um, which is not a formation that you get to see a lot in high-level football, and that, that is always quite interesting to me as well. And having Marcel Sabitzer and Joshua Kimmich at the, at the base in the, in the middle of the park, uh, Jamal Messi Island and um, Thomas Muller were sort of playing as these sort of twin attacking midfielders who also then sort of hit the flanks. And then you had Serge Nabry and Sadio Mane playing as the, I guess, quote-unquote strikers, but neither of them are strikers. Um, for what it's worth, they did score six goals. So it seems like the system works uh, certainly well enough given what they have. Um, so yeah, very impressive. Union Berlin, the uh, the team after my own heart, um, got off the got off the um, the mark very quickly as well with uh, Sibachi, the the player I mentioned, uh, opening the scoring in, in in the thirtieth minute, um, and them scoring three goals inside fifty five minutes um, to to really shut it down. Um, very very exciting stuff. So they are they are currently um, joint third uh, behind Freiburg and, and Bayern Munich. So so very interesting. One one I would recommend to sort of keep a little eye on, not least because hey, if you're listening to this. Podcast, podcast much as i listen to, to different podcasts on my own time so that you can every now and again have the uh the sly sort of oh look what i know about football comment in the pub um union berlin would be one to keep tabs on in my opinion because uh they will be many the, the source of many a many a comment like that Werder Bremen are back in the bundesliga uh promoted back again after a while down in the uh two bundesliga and Wolfsburg are definitely quite an interesting one to be watching this season as well uh, with uh, their manager, Niko Kovac. Certainly a familiar face in the Bundesliga, uh, having guided Bayern to a domestic double uh, and Frankfurt to the uh, the DFB Cup. Um, so it'll be, uh, it'll be very interesting to, to see how he does there. 
uh, a couple of other interesting things that set the Bundesliga apart are, um, firstly, last season the Bundesliga was the uh, the best in the top five leagues in terms of goals per game, uh, averaging a, uh, a return of 3.12 goals every 90 minutes. Um, which is interesting because uh, Bayern were uh, 2.85 um, every goal per minute. So, you know, they, they were definitely uh, getting a lot of those, but sometimes people were getting them back, clearly. Um, and Dortmund, so, so Bayern were first across top flight teams um, in Europe, uh, which you might not be surprised, you might think they dominated, but Dortmund with 2.5 were also third, which uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, and this is obviously, you know, bearing in mind that there's uh, there's about 34 games in the, in the Bundesliga season with only 18 teams. The other thing that's particularly interesting is that um, they are only now sort of fully returning to full stadiums. A lot of different countries have had a lot of different regulations in terms of returning from COVID. Obviously, here in the UK, we kind of just went back in the stadiums as soon as possible, um, which... Uh, I want to sort of be all disapproving dad about, but I love going to the football, so <laughs> uh, yay. Um, but in terms of the Bundesliga, um, they st- started to get into it um, late last season, and now we're going to be able to start the season and, and, and you know, we'll all like, have a full season with full capacity stadiums. It'll be interesting to see if that is... Um, you know, particularly uh, different for anyone that, that, that is coming up. Um, it's interesting that the average size of the uh, the 80 top like grounds is over 46 and a half thousand which is enormous um and two of the clubs well the two clubs that have been newly promoted uh Schalke and Werder Bremen that are quite historically top flight sides um it'll be interesting to see if they're sort of like died in the wall fans are able to sort of buoy their return to the league over some of the teams that are you know slightly less part of the furniture like perhaps uh, an Union Berlin although I don't think they will Definitely an interesting season for newcomers, both in terms of teams and indeed players. Uh, and I do hope that it's not just, uh, you know, season win number 11 for Bayern. I do think it probably will be. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying hard to get excited for the Bundesliga. Because um, it is exciting to watch Bayern play in the Champions League and, and watch Dortmund do their thing. And RB Leipzig have been coming up in recent years. I hope for the sake of the, and the health of the league um, that it's not just more of the same. Although, you know... German football fans don't seem to mind too much. They are, you know, amongst some of the most uh, amazing fans uh, outside of South America, uh, and then certainly some of the most, the most, you know, feverish. So yeah, I think they'll uh, they'll they'll keep the party going with their their amazing tifos and, and things like that. But um, that's probably about it for, for for my preview. Partly because there's not so much of a conversation about uh, who's going to be winning the title. Um, I look forward to seeing if I'm going to be proved wrong. Uh, and if someone can finally dethrone Bayern uh, after 10 long years. Uh, but that's about it for this one. Thanks. Hello, hello. This is Rupert, and let's talk Liga. I want to start off just jumping into the, the title race. We're going to talk about a couple of win conditions. So I think there are three things that could lead to PSG not winning the, the title. Um, the first is that they don't mesh as a team, as a dressing room. The second is that they choose to focus more on Europe. And the third, that their biggest competition, which is generally considered to be Lyon, absolutely fly this year. So we're going to go and break down each one of those three now. The first one, PSG don't mesh. Um, I think it's a pretty straightforward one. As everyone knows, there are big egos in this dressing room. And, and I can imagine it's an absolute poison chalice to, to go into that room and it's just really difficult to to manage it to keep the players on side to to manage those those personalities 
we've heard a lot about how since signing a new contract, Kylian Mbappe is apparently playing a really big role in, in almost everything. He can affect signings. He probably affected, um, influenced who they brought in as manager, which is Christophe Galtier. And that's a tricky environment for any manager to walk into. Christophe Galtier, as I just mentioned, is the new manager of PSG. And he has an exceptional track record, but he is new. So, you know, that's just a bit of an unknown. How will he fare walking into that room? And I think that there's a solid chance that it's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows. One thing that is frightening is that their worst by far attribute as a team last year was defence. And they actually finished in the bottom half of the table for clean sheets, which is wild considering how dominant they are as a team in that league. So with their new manager, Christophe Galtier, he is a, a formidable defensive coach. And I think um, that's probably the, the closest indication I can get to, to like the fact that it's really going to work out, which is just that their attack's already really good. And that's where all the main egos are. That doesn't need a lot of change. It's going to be in the defense where that getting shored up is going to take them from, you know, being a very good team domestically to potentially being a challenging team in Europe. Let's talk about the second condition, uh, PSG focus on Europe. Um, if they win the Liga title this year, PSG will become the most decorated domestic league side ever with 11 wins. Currently, they're tied with Saint-Étienne on 10. Their main problem has always been Europe, where they've consistently fallen short. And, and the pressure is always very much on to perform at that stage, on that bigger stage. And, and presumably, from the outside looking in at the dressing room and at the, the atmosphere at the club, you know, the more player power there is, the more you have these huge players saying, we want to win things. We demand to win the biggest things. We want to be relevant in France. I think that's an important point. Um, the more pressure there'll be to compete at that top level. Um, so I think there's a good chance they'll be putting more eggs into that European basket than the, the domestic basket. Um, and Christophe Galtier is a very, very impressive manager. Um, he's got an exceptional track record and we don't really have the, the likes of him in England. PSG is his fourth club um, and he's had success absolutely everywhere. Um, he took Saint-Étienne from almost going down to finishing in the top 10 for seven consecutive seasons. So he immediately turned them around and had them consistently hitting highs, which is so, so impressive. Um, he then took over Lille, I think in 2019, in December, so midway through the season, while they were 18th place, he managed to keep them up by one point, and the next season finished second. And the season after that, in 2020-2021, they won the title. So that turnaround, that trajectory is just wild. Um, I don't think we have any manager in England currently that I could point to as, oh, that guy's done that, or that guy could do that. Um, last season... Fairly uninteresting. He took over a ninth place Nice and finished fifth. It's still progress. It's still impressive. He's taken a club and improved them. Um, but that that record is really, really good. What it isn't, however, is European. And so when, when we come to, to look at this idea of PSG focusing on Europe, um, Galtier was the only option of the six main touted candidates for, for the PSG managerial role, they had only managed in France. Um, so I think 
firstly, he'll be slightly unlikely to totally flop the league because he was focusing on Europe too heavily because he's got such great experience in Liga. Um, and secondly, I think that if PSG wanted Europe above all else, they might well have just picked a different manager. And if they really, really wanted it, they probably would have hired Zidane. Um, and despite a lot of song and dance at times about Zidane, it was apparently never very close. So I think it could happen that PSG focus on Europe to the extent that they let the the domestic side of things slip. But I think it's it's a little unlikely. And I think what it's going to necessitate is maybe them resting some players in domestic competitions, losing some points. Um, and then ultimately, the third one, Leon absolutely fly. Um, and Leon are a funny bag because everyone's saying that they are the main contenders for PSG, um, despite the fact that they actually finished eighth last season. Everyone's looking at them as a real surprise package for a couple of reasons. One, they managed to keep all of their very impressive players. Uh, Lucas Paqueta, Carl Tobo Akambi, and Hussem Awar. On top of that, their signings have been quite impressive this year. They've bought in Lacazette, who we will know, um, who used to play at Lyon before he joined Arsenal. They've also brought in Tolisso, who also joined Bayern Munich from Lyon. So it's a couple of, of older players coming back from, from new clubs, from old clubs, um, and that is just going to impact the dressing room, I think in probably quite a positive way. Um, and they've also brought in Talia Fico, who I've always thought uh, a top team in Europe should um, have signed them. I think he's been mentioned once or twice in the the signing videos that we do each year in January where we say, here's one player that each club in the Premier League should sign. I think Talia Fico's featured there once or twice. He's he's old, but he's a very good left back. He's all-rounded. He can go forward very well. And he's also going to fit well with the manager, um, who's called Peter Boz. He's, he's Dutch, uh, surprisingly enough, bafflingly. Uh, he's, he's strongly influenced by Johan Cruyff. Crazy that a Dutchman is, is that. Um, so he's all about attacking football, possession-based football, and, and a very high press. Another thing about Lyon, they have no European football. And I think there have definitely been times where we've seen that really work out in people's favour. So in terms of those three win conditions, PSG not meshing, PSG focusing on Europe, and Lyon flying, I think that PSG not meshing, there's probably a 6 out of 10 chance that they don't. I think... Um, PSG focusing on Europe to the to the severe detriment of their domestic competition. I'd say that's maybe like a 5 out of 10 chance. And then Leon flying, probably 8 out of 10. So overall, putting those together, that leaves us with maybe like a 6.3 chance out of 10 that Leon are going to really challenge for the title and make it close. Probably the most exciting team to watch um, this year will be Wren. Despite the fact that they finished fourth, they had a goal difference of plus 42, which is comfortably the second best in the league. And they also scored comfortably the second most goals with 82. Um, so just eight goals behind PSG's incredibly strong attack. And they are generally just a quite a bombastic team. Um, they don't care too much about uh, defending really solidly. They want to press... They want to play fast, attacking, direct football, exciting football. And they finished fourth last season, but they could be could be hitting third quite easily. Could maybe even be hitting second. Um, I don't think this season will be... I don't think they'll be ready to, to challenge for the, the title itself. But 
potentially, I mean, they're building something there. They could well be a really strong outfit in a year or two's time. So they would probably be my, you know, team to watch, most exciting team. One team that I want to just say is, uh, I guess it's always it's always interesting to kind of pick out one team that you think is not going to do as well, that might be in trouble this year. And, and I've picked Marseille. And it's not that they're in trouble in that they're danger of getting relegated or anything like that. But I think if they're not careful, they could well be in danger of finishing outside of European contention, which is the top five in France. Um, for starters, they lost... Uh, Bubakar Kamara and William Saliba both to the Premier League this year and those two players had the the first most amount of minutes last season and also the third most amount of minutes last season so two incredibly important players in two incredibly important positions centre-back and centre-defensive midfield they've bought a few players in but nothing exciting at least on first viewing I might be wrong when it turns out they're, they're absolute superstars come January but um, the main part of, of why I think they, they could well slide down the table is that they've lost their really good manager, Jorge Sampaoli, who was a real factor in them finishing second last year. He's gone. He's been replaced by a guy called Igor Tudor, who I wouldn't blame anyone for not knowing. I hadn't really come across him um, very much before really deep diving into this league. He was managing Hellas Verona last year. He took them to ninth place last season. Um what worries me about him is that Hellas Verona and now, sorry, now Marseille was his ninth club in nine years. And that includes a double stint to Udinese. So it's actually been 10, 10 managerial stints in nine years. Um, he's been fired before for bad results. He's been fired for disparaging comments about his players. And a couple of times he's left just because teams haven't offered him a new or extended contract. Um, last year was quite good. He took a, a kind of struggling Verona to ninth place, but they'd finished 10th the season before, so it wasn't completely out of the ordinary. And and the main thing is that just none of this tells me that his Marseille are going to be flying out of the gates and competing with the top dogs in France this year. So if, if anyone has to watch out for themselves um, in terms of finishing significantly below where they finished this year, last year, um, it's going to be Marseille. My surprise package this year is Clermont. Um, they're facing a difficult road ahead. They've just avoided relegation last year. They finished 17th. They lost their star striker, Bio this window, who scored 40% of their goals last year. They've also lost a, a key central midfielder for them in Salis Abdul Samed, um, who's joined Lens. And a lot of people have written them off as likely to be relegated. But I'm here to tell you, don't yet. Um, while they have lost that midfielder, they've replaced him with Maxime Gonalons, who has a wealth of experience in defensive midfield and also just in French football in general. Um, and then there are a couple of couple of small things that make me feel like it might be a slightly better year for them. Last year, they allowed their opponents the highest average shot quality, statistics-wise, of any team in the league. Um, you know what kind of player solves that? A good defensive midfielder like Maxime Gonalons. Um, and while they lost Bio, they have brought in an interesting player in Komnen Andrich, who hasn't exactly sizzled as a striker for the last few years, but he has got two goals already in the opening three games. And here comes my favourite stats. Um, Johan Gastien, one of their midfielders, 
made quite comfortably the most line-breaking passes last season of any midfielder with 8.1 per 90. The next best for context was Verratti with 6.5 and Messi with 6.3. So if he can keep doing those good things and if their new striker Andrich can keep up the goal scoring, then they might well retain their bite this year in a way that not everyone is expecting from them, given that they have lost uh, the player, Bio, who scored the majority of their goals. But I think the fact that those line-breaking passes and, and they've got this real depth of creativity in midfield indicates that I don't think it was necessarily Bio being so, so good that allowed them to score those goals. I think it was that they were creating a lot of chances. Um, so they're also, interestingly, known as a bit of a bogey club and they've often taken down teams much higher up in the table than them. Um, for example, they beat Marseille, Nice and Rennes last season. They all finished in the top um, five, six. Um, their weakness actually has been in dropping points or sharing points with the teams around them at the bottom of the table. If you look at their record against the three teams that got relegated last year, they lost to Saint-Étienne twice. They got two draws with Mets and they got one draw with Bordeaux and one win. So not a great return. And it's actually a much easier job to fix that, um, especially when they've got a good manager like they do. Um, as it's already clear, you know, that they've got good performances in their locker. They can upset the big teams. They can perform well on the day. It's just about hitting consistency, which they can continue to work on. A couple of exciting players to watch. Um, Breland Bolo, who I mentioned earlier, is um, really, really good striker of the ball. Um, I think him partnering up with uh, Wasim Ben Yedda at Monaco's attack is is really going to be a fun thing to watch. Um, Rayan Cherky for Lyon um, is also looking quite good. He's actually not a signing. He's, um, he's a young player who broke through last season. He is um, just a really good free-flowing attacking footballer. He's got great awareness. He's very good at picking out players in tight situations around him. Um, and he, he's being tipped as kind of one of the next big things in French football. So him at Lyon, while Lyon are making quite a big title push this year, it's going to be a fun thing to watch. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to see him in Europe this year, as I said, because Lyon did miss out. Um, and then Kamal Dean Suleimana from Rennes, um, he almost left this summer. I think he was um, linked to a couple of Premier League clubs, um, but he's managed to stick around at least so far. He's 20, he's he's rapid, he's he's a really tricky winger, um, and he, he's one of those players that he's a bit of a live wire on the wing. He can kind of go either way. He can beat a player, put a ball in, um, and he... He was injured a little bit last year, but he, before then, was becoming a really important player for the team. So, Ren, as I said, they're a really attacking, dynamic team. They like to hit on the counter. I think they are really ideal for him um, as a player to, to kind of um, push on and, and be exciting to watch. Elie Wahi of Montpellier is actually the final one I want to mention. Um, he's a striker who very much got that uh, you know, that power to change games, that it factor. He got 10 goals last year. He's only 19. He's he's very much the kind of player that someone like Leicester would pick up and, and everyone would go, hey, who's this guy? He's pretty good. Um, so I think, I think keep an eye on him. He might well be getting a big move in a year or two's time. And that brings the deep dive, small deep dive of Liga to a close. I think um, 
PSG might well be challenging in Europe. And I think as a result, there could be a little bit more of a of a closer title race than there was last year. Um, Leon definitely wants to look for. And as ever, there are loads and loads of players who um, we might well just be seeing playing for the top teams in a couple of years' time. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amschel.